theyeshiva.net. Okay, we're going to start by Ezer Hashem, a new Mimer today. We finished yesterday uh, the Mimer Rani Vesimchi. I don't know I could say that we finished it, but... Uh, so please turn to page 86. We're going to learn now a Vayigash Mimer of the Baal Hatanya, the Alter Rebbe in Torah Ur, Parshas Vayigash. It's the first Mimer on Vayigash, which starts Vayigash Elov Yehuda, Vayoymer Bi Adoni, which is the opening posseg of Parshas Vayigash. This discourse was said by the Baal Hatanya in the year Tov Kuf Samach He, which means 1805 in the English, the secular calendar, and it's a Vayigash Dikemaimer. It starts off on the Pasuk Vayigash. He immediately goes off to a whole other Pasuk which doesn't seem connected at all to the discussion at hand. But later he's going to return to this theme of the Pasuk and you'll see how uh, the idea develops. At first glance, I'm going to say a few words as an introduction. The Maimer discusses the difference between the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash to explain Parshas Vayigash, which would seem very strange, because Parshas Vayigash deals not with the Mishkan and not with the Beis HaMikdash. As it later emerges in the Maimer, the contrast between the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash has to do with the contrast between the two sets, the two brothers, Yehuda versus Yosef. Of course, the Parshi is from Vayeshev till the end of Chomesh Bereshes, Vayeshev, Miketz, Vayigash, Vayechi. The main character, if you will, is Yosef HaTzadek. His upbringing, his dreams, his challenges, his, abduc- his abduction, his sale as a slave, his being sold as a slave, his journeys, his terrible suffering and agony, and yet his ultimate resurrection and his ultimate appointment as the Prime Minister of the world power of the time. And the person who ultimately encounters Yosef in the most dramatic way the ultimate confrontation is between Yehuda, Yehuda representing the other brothers. It happens throughout the story. The one who is responsible for extracting Yosef from the pit and selling him as a slave was ultimately Yehuda. He is the one who convinced his brothers to do it. Ultimately, it's Yehuda who, after the sale of Yosef, is dethroned and has to leave the family for quite a while in order to be able to find himself or to uh, figure things out. It is Yehuda ultimately who convinces Yaakov to allow him to take Binyamin down to Egypt. Reuven is unsuccessful. It's Reuven, Yehuda who gets up in Parshas Miketz and says, I will be the guarantor. It's Yehuda who takes the responsibility for Binyamin and allows Yaakov to send Binyamin with him. And it's Yehuda in the ultimate moment of truth which turns out to be the most pivotal moment in the story. When Yosef, dressed up as the viceroy of Egypt, demands Binyamin as a slave because he was caught as a thief and in an act of treason, stealing the private goblet, the gavia, the becher of Yosef, of the prime minister of Egypt, and he wants Binyamin to be his slave to atone for the thievery and Yehuda and his brothers to go back to their father. It's Vayigash, I love Yehuda. It's Yehuda from all the brothers who confronts Yosef, let me speak to you. Don't get upset. And it's Yehuda who ultimately tells Yosef, 
that v'nafshay kshura v'nafshay, there's no way you could separate binyamin from Yaakov. Eich elel avi v'anarin enuiti. I can't go to my father without the lad, and that is what inspires Yosef. Yochel Yosef lehisapik. Yosef was a cupmensch. Yosef was a was a brilliant man, but even Yosef could not contain himself emotionally, and he sends everybody out, and he says, "Ani Yosef, I am Yosef." So that's why Yehuda and Yosef become really the chief characters that represent the confrontation and the ultimate meeting and encounter and reconciliation between the brothers, between the children, the children of Yaakov. Now, we say all is well that ends well. Sefer Bereshis ends on a very positive note. There's reconciliation between brothers. And don't take that for granted. Brothers getting along is historic, especially in Sefer Bereshis. Because all of Sefer Bereshis is really a meditation of how brothers don't get along. If there's one theme that pervades all of Sefer Bereshis is that brothers tend to kill each other. Brothers tend to despise each other. Brothers tend to compete over the same mental space. And the space somehow is not large enough for everybody to share it. Whether it's parental love, parental validation, parental validation, parental parental, uh, acceptance, parental security, or other issues. But generally speaking, Darizal says, Darizal says something very poignant. He says that the reason that there's so much sibling rivalry is, he says, when two neshamas don't come from the same shayrish, it's easier for them to get along. Because they don't see in the other one a competition to them. You are you, and I am I. So your existence doesn't threaten me. When two neshamas come from the same shayrish, from the same root, they both need the same root under the ground to get their chiyos. So he says, one of two things happen. Either they discover how one they are, or they hate each other. It can't be in the middle. Either you discover trust, real, real trust, and then it's very powerful, and then the unity is more powerful than any other unity, because we're like, we have the same root, so we mamash become one. And if not, he says, it's a bitter. Because you're competing for the same roots. You're competing for the same yinika, for the same nurture. For, yeah, I can't go, go, to the, go to the other soil. Go. We're the same tree. That's what he says. So Psychologically, you could see this. You know, fam- There's nothing like family rivalry. The closeness of family and the distance of family are equally powerful as painful. And it's really, it's really a, uh, uh, it's a very profound description. And, and Sefer Bereshis deals with this constantly. Because it actually, we would expect it to digress, but it actually progresses, it advances in the positive. In the first parsha, the first two brothers, literally, it ends up in homicide. Cain doesn't like Hevel and he murders him, which is always the simple thing to do. It's called assassination. You move on and that's it. You, you, you dealt with the problem. You killed your brother. In Parshas Noyach, one brother gets cursed. He's cursed. As we move on in Lech Lecha and Vayera, there's also a confrontation between brothers, and it ends in expulsion. Yishmol is expelled. Okay, at least it's not homicide. He's not killed, or Yitzhak is not killed, but he's expelled. When it comes to the next story, Toldus and Vayetze and Vayishlach, it's the next set of brothers, Yaakov and Esav. And here, it ends with Yaakov running for his life. And even later, when there is some reconciliation, they ultimately have to part ways. Yaakov says, we can't, we can't coexist. 
One day, one day I'll arrive. When it comes to the next step, Vayeshev, now there's a confrontation that almost ends up in murder, ends up in selling a brother to slavery, but in Vayigash and Vayichi, the brothers reconcile. There's forgiveness, there's atonement, there's family unity again, the father gets to see all the children together. So if you realize what Sefer Bereshis is saying is that it's possible to finish the story differently. The story always begins the same way. You don't like your brother. That's how it begins. You don't like your sister, you don't like your mother, you don't like your... whatever. You have issues. Let's put it this way. You have issues. There's much more power. Of. That includes... You have issues. You're a person. You, there's issues. That's, that's part of humanity. If you're a human being, families have issues. The only families that I know that are perfect are the families I don't know. Oh, 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 Rabbi Litzman. At the end of Bereshis, Yosef and the brothers get along, but they still can't work together. Yosef is the prime minister, and the brothers are in Koilu. He supports them. They come every month for the check. He sponsors Shalashudas. He takes care of the dinner. He takes care of all the Moisdus Atayra. But he's in the palace, and they're in Gaish. The revolution and Parshas Shmoises that two brothers work together. That's already a whole different dimension. When Moshe doesn't want to take the job, he doesn't say why. He says, I can't talk, I can't go, they won't believe me. But at the end, Hashem points out something else. Hashem says, Your brother Aaron, when he sees you, now, the Torah usually doesn't speak about the heart. It speaks much more about actions. But here, it's all about Beliboy. Because it's easy for an older brother to watch his baby brother, who he used to change his pampers for, rise to become Moshe Rabbeinu and say, look at my brother. Ah, I wish you well. But inside, inside, ay, 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 ay. Why not me? <laughs> Why I, I remember this baby, right? And he'll make sure to remind it to him, consciously or subconsciously even more. So Hashem tells Moshe, In his heart he's going to be comfortable with your position. To the point that he's going to work with you. Even though they weren't raised together. Even though they weren't raised together at all. Maybe that helped. <laughs> 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 Maybe that's why it could work. And only after this can Matan Torah happen. Only after this can Matan Torah happen. As long as the brothers, Yosef and his brothers, can't learn forgiveness and can't learn to get along, and Moshe and Aaron can't work together, the Torah can't be given to the Jewish people. Which means it's very, very hard to separate Torah from family unity. If you don't learn how to get along as a family, if you're busy fighting with each other and not talking to each other, Matan Torah will not happen in your life. It's just impossible. In fact, in Kisve Harizal, there's a whole Indian, it's not for now, but Kisve Harizal Tainas, that Yisroi was a Gilgul, Harizal Tainas, Yisroi was a Gilgul of Kayan. Moshe was a Gilgul of Heaven. When Yisroi comes to meet Moshe in Parshish Yisroi, he says, Ani Chaysencha Yisroi Ba'elecha. Ani Chaysencha Yisroi is the acronym Achi. Ani is Aleph, Chaysencha, your father-in-law. Yisra is Aleph, Ches, Yud, Achi, my brother. This was basically Yisra and Hevel, Kayan and Hevel, making peace, but it had to be the other way around. Meaning, Moshe got the flock of Yisra because when Kayan murdered Hevel, he took away all of his sheep. 
So now Yisrael was giving him back his sheep that he once stole from him, because Yisrael is Kayin Moshe's Hevel. In addition to that, Kayin murdered Hevel because Hevel was born with an extra twin sister. And Yisrael murdered him because he wanted that girl who was reincarnated into Tzipoira. So when Yisrael gave Moshe back Tzipoira, it was Kayin giving back Hevel, his woman. So what Arizal is making a point, among others, is that it was Matan Torah that can happen only after the first brothers of history could learn how to get along. But, I said, all is well when it ends well. Parshas Bereshis looks like it ends well, but it doesn't end well. And how do we know it doesn't end well? Because consciously there was peace. Subconsciously there was no peace. Where do we see it? Sometimes it takes hundreds of years for subconscious forces to emerge. Shloima HaMelech passes away. Shloima came from the family of Yehuda. Yehuda is the family of royalty. Yehuda is the family of Malchus. Shloima is succeeded by his son Rechavam. And at that moment, there's a split. There's a split. A complete split in the Jewish people. And who becomes a new king? Yeravam. Yeravam comes from the tribe of Ephraim. Yeravim ben Nevot. Ephraim is, of course, the son of Yosef. So suddenly, there's now two kings in Klal Yisrael. There's Melech, Malchus Yehuda, and Malchus Yosef, called Malchus Yisrael. What we call the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom in Yerushalayim is carried on by the family of Yehuda. You'll have Rechavam, and it will be succeeded by the dynasty of David HaMelech for many generations, till the last king, Tzitkiah, Tzitkiyo, who will watch the Churban Beis HaMikdash and will be destroyed, will be blinded by Nebuchadnezzar, Melech Bavel, but there will be a whole other kingdom which actually numbers, far has much more citizens than the other kingdom. It has ten Shvatim. And that is run by Yeravim ben Nevat, who comes from Yosef. And there's going to be sometimes peaceful relationships, but usually not, between the two Malchusin, which weakens the fabric of the Jewish people because they're not a unified force. And therefore, 150 years before the Churban Bayis Rishon, the Ten Shvatim are destroyed, exiled, and assimilated. And in one of the greatest mysteries of Jewish history, within a century and a half, we don't know what happened to these Jews, and we still don't know what happened to these Jews, even though every few years you will hear about a tribe in Africa, Japan, and Afghanistan who somehow claim to be one of the Asaras Ashvatim. But this is one of the mysteries of Jewish history, how in a century so many Jews just disappeared from the planet, we never hear of them ever again. That's the end of Aseris HaShvatim. The other two Shvatim, Yehuda and Binyamin, which are in Yerushalayim, remain. And most of us are descendants of them, even though we have descendants of all Aseris HaShvatim, because it's not that they all disappeared. It means their central communities disappeared. But you could have had somebody from, from Shevet Yisachar or Zvulan hanging out in Yerushalayim who didn't disappear, so it's not like we know for sure all Jews are from Yehuda and Binyamin, probably the majority. But in any case, suddenly that conflict between Yehuda and Yosef resurfaces again. And that's why there's a Haftarah in Vayigash, which he's going to focus on, from Yecheskel. Yecheskel Perik Lamed Zayin, and Yecheskel prophesizes after the destruction of the first Beis HaMikdash. And as we're going to see, the Rebbein Shalom tells Yecheskel, and it's the Haftarah of this Shabbos, take two sticks. On one stick you should write the name Yehuda. On the other stick you should write the name Ephraim. And take these two sticks and bring them together. And let the two sticks metamorphosize into one. To tell you and to teach you that there will be a day that the Jews will not be split anymore. There won't be two mamlachas, two empires, two monarchs. One from Yehuda and one from Yosef. Rechavam and Yeravam. 
but rather they will become one. Va'avdi David Melech Aleim La'Olam. My servant David will be the Melech. Va'avdi David Nasi Aleim La'Olam. Mashiach Yosef's Yosef's monarchy will merge and morph into Yehuda's monarchy, and they'll be able to be peace one day. And indeed, in Jewish history, and in Zayar, even more, we have two Mashiachs. We have a Mashiach bin Yosef and a Mashiach bin It's also a very mysterious sugya. Who is this Mashiach bin Yosef? And somehow Mashiach bin Yosef is a preparation for Mashiach bin David. The Gemara says at the end of Sukkah, Mashiach bin Yosef is going to be killed. And he's going to herald the coming of Mashiach bin David. Now, of course, Jews throughout history have always speculated about Mashiach bin Yosef and Mashiach bin David. That Rizal told his students that when they say, they should think about him, that he should remain alive. Because he's Mashiach bin Yosef. He died very young. He died uh, 36 or 38 or 36 in 1572. But this is also a very intense discussion. This is the sugya that this Maimer is confronting. It's part, I shouldn't say the sugya. One aspect of this sugya, of Yehuda and Yosef, original Yehuda and Yosef, and the way it resurfaces in Jewish history, till Asad Lava, is what this Maimer deals with. And the way he gets into it is through analyzing the Mishkan versus the Beis HaMikdash. So really what you have here is, it's a very, as usual, a very spiritual discussion. It's Torah Sanister. It's Pnimi Yisat But it really sheds unique light on one of the great historical narratives, dilemmas, enigmas, tragedies, and problems that the Jewish people face. And what's going to emerge from here is a uniquely fascinating idea that Yehuda and Yosef were arguing about an idea. This wasn't a personal fight or debate. It was an argument about an idea. It's basically two ways of defining Yiddishkeit, two ways of defining God, two ways of defining our relationship with God, two ways of defining one's meaning in life. And as is always the case with most of these arguments, there's Eluv Elu There's truth in each. It's not one is a lie and one is true. There's truth in each. But the struggle is, can they coexist? Is there room for both of them? And what's the respect that each one gives the other? What's the space that each one, each one gives... Uh, gives the other. Rabbi Yosheber Soloveitchik once said that uh, in Valozhin, his father, his Zayde, Rabbi Chaim Briska, was the Rosh Hashiva of Valozhin. His elder Zayde, who he was named after, Rabbi Yosef Doiv Halevi Soloveitchik, known as the Beis Halevi, was also a Rosh Hashiva in Valozhin, together with the Nitziv. The Nitziv was Rabbeinu Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, who was a son-in-law of Rabbi Itchel of Valozhiner, who was a son of Rabbi Chaim Valozhiner, who was the founder of the Valozhiner Yeshiva. Valozhiner is in Belarus, near Lithuania. And Rabbi Chaim was a student of the Vilna God. In Valozhiner, the two Rosh Yeshivas, there was contention between them. The Beis Halevi and the Nitziv had different styles of teaching and learning. Very different styles, which you could see in their Svarim, the books of the Beis Halevi and the Svarim of the Nitziv. And usually in every Yeshiva you have bored teenagers, and in every yeshiva you have hotheads, and in every yeshiva you have zealots, and in every yeshiva you have kids who decide that what they think is God's truth. You have prophets. Young people are often prophets, which is a good thing and a bad thing. So you had that in Valajan also, like you still have in many yeshivas, and they created chaos, absolute chaos between the two Rosh Yeshivas. And there was a big dintoida in Valajan. They brought down three big rabbonim, to discuss the tension between Rabbi Yosheber Soloveitchik and, and as he was known as Rabbi Hirschel, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin who was older 
and, and was there first and was responsible for the for the financial elements of the issue. And it was an intense dintaira. So the grandson, the Yashabes Salavetik, his great grandson, once told a story and he said that before they gave a psak, which they gave a psak and they brought peace in Valajan, at least relatively speaking, they said as an introduction, one of them, I think it was David Kaliner, who said, uh, I think the Kovner Rav was a dintaira, a specter, it was very big Rabbanan. I think the lodger Rav, I think Reb David Karlin, the lodger Rav was Reb Eliyol Chaim Meisel of Lodge, and Reb Yitzchak Alchanan Specter, the Rav of Kovna, who was really the leader of Lithuanian Jewry, and Yeshivas Rabbeinu Yitzchak Alchanan is named after him, the Kovna Rav. I think it was those three, maybe it was other ones, but that's the names that remain in my head. There's a book about it called Harishan L'Sheishalas Brisk, Rabbi Chaim Karlinsky, he discusses the Dintoida at length. So Rabbi Soloveitchik said, before they gave a psak, they said as follows. They said, you know, when you read Chumash with children, maybe in our shiurim it became a little different, but when you read Chumash with children, it's simple. It's black and white. There's a hero and there's a villain. Cain is the villain, Hevel is the hero. Chum is the villain, and Shem and Yefes are the heroes. Yitzchak is the hero, Yishmol is the villain, Yaakov is the tzaddik, Esav is the Russia. Siglat, black, white, black, white. The kid knows this is the good guy, this is the bad guy. Him you want to copy, and he you want to run away from. It's very clear. Now you have Yosef against Yehuda. You have to remember, the Beis name was Yosef. <laughs> the Nitziv's name was Yehuda, Naftali Tzvi Yehuda. So this was an ingenious chap. It says, you have Yosef and Yehuda. He says, there's no good guy and bad guy here. You read the Chumash, it's not clear. It's not clear who's the sinner, who's the villain, who's the hero. Is Yehuda a Rosh and Yosef is a Tzadik? Is Yosef the Tzadik and his brothers are wicked, Tachzar Mershayim? You see, it's not, it's the Nishklar. He says, it's very subtle, it's very <laughs> ambiguous. It's very ambiguous. They're both tzaddikim. They just have different paths in life. He said, this is our introduction to the Psakdin. It's not a hero against a villain. They're both tzaddikim. There's different approaches in life. Different approaches in life end up in contention. This was a very uh, sophisticated way of presenting the Psak and the difficulty of presenting the Psak when you're not dealing with right and wrong. Sometimes you're dealing with right and right. But two rights become right and wrong because uh, when you're trying to run, you're trying to run a yeshiva, you're trying to run a kitchen, right? The We say a chef, you know, two chef, many chefs can spoil the dish. So let's uh, let's start the mimer inside. the pasuk says the last pasuk of Perik Aleph. Shehashirim, the Song of Songs, one seventeen. Koyroiz batenu arazim v'goymer. Shleim HaMelech says, Koyroiz batenu, the beams of our home were made of arazim, are made of cedar wood. Rehitenu b'roisim. So Rashi says, Koyroiz batenu arazim, Shvach HaMishkan Huzeh. In Shehashirim, Aleph Yudzayim. This is praise for the Mishkan. What does he mean, praise of the Mishkan? Batenu means a house. But the beams of the Beis HaMikdash were not cedar wood. The beams of the Beis HaMikdash were, there was a chaymah, there was a wall of stone, of evan. So when it says arazim, which is wood, the kroshim of the Mishkan were made of atzei shitim, which I think is translated as acacia wood. How do they translate atzei shitim? 
in, in yeshiva they would say Pimsenholz, right? Vizakvam by then, huh? Tenem by man. Okay. There's Pimsenholz. Okay. Huh? That's why they threw you out. What does Nish give us? Okay. So, so koyres batenu can mean the base hamikdash. The base hamikdash wasn't made. The, be, the the walls weren't made of wood. The mishkan, the walls, which were really beams, they were plated with gold, but they were made of wood. Koyres batenu aras. Now, why is this pasuk so significant? That Shloima Melech, when he builds the base hamikdash and he makes right shirashidim, also extols the mishkan. Koyres batenu aras. Hine yeshlohavina hefresh ben hamishkan lebeis haylamin. For this, we have to understand the fundamental difference between the Mishkan and the eternal home, meaning the base Hamikdash. Hamishkan Hoyamearazim. The Mishkan was built primarily of wood, meaning its walls, its confinements, its beams. Kamayshakasav, as it says in Parashas Truma, Atsei Shittim Oimdim. You had to take Atsei Shittim and have them standing, and that's how you made the Mishkan. The Hamichse now take the roof of the Mishkan. The roof of the Mishkan came from animal skin, the hide of goats, the hide, the skin of rams, and finally the skin of an animal called Tachash. You had various layers of tapestries that were made from these oiris, from these fur, and they were covering the Mishkan. That means the walls of the Mishkan were made from wood, the roof of the Mishkan was made from animal hide. When you analyze the Beis HaMikdash, the Beis HaMikdash was made from stone and earth. Both the wall of the Beis HaMikdash and the roof, the Heichel had a roof, just like the Mishkan had a roof. We're not talking about the courtyard of the Mishkan. We're talking about the inner chamber, the Heichel of the Mishkan, just like the Beis HaMikdash had a roof. By the Beis HaMikdash, it was made of stone. And the walls were made of stone. You look at the remainders of the Beis HaMikdash that we still see now, including the Kaisel, you see what type of stone, what type of rocks we're dealing with. The Mishkan was made, the walls from wood, and the roof, not from stone, from hides of animals. And it's even deeper than this. It's not only they didn't, they were prohibited to do it. To make in the base Hamikdash, eights, boilet, wood sticking out, protruding. They, we don't care if there's eights behind the wall, that's fine. But to have eights boilet, or even corridors of eights that are plated with wood, walls of wood was prohi- prohibited in the Beis HaMikdash. It's interesting, you could not have any visible wood in the Beis HaMikdash. What was visible? Earth on the bottom you can have, and you have rock, stone. In the Mishkan, it was all wood. Atzei Shittim, all around and around, it was all Atzei Shittim. Rak shahoyuklun soyuz shal eres betikra ulam. It says in the roof of the ulam, they had inside klun soyuz, are uh, hooks of cedar wood. Here we have to have an understanding. Why by the Mishkan, the Arazim, the wood, was the primary component of the foundation of the Mishkan. The beams that hold up the structure of the Mishkan were made of wood. Where was the earth by the Mishkan? Only on the ground. Because remember, the Mishkan was a mobile sanctuary. So therefore, the earth was the desert earth. But where was the offer? The offer was the lowest level of the Mishkan. So by the Mishkan, you have earth on the bottom. 
the walls are made of wood and the roof is made of animal hide. By the Beis Hamikdash, it's the other way around. Everything is essentially made of earth or rock, stone. The walls and even the roof. And here the Eitzim are only subservient. They're only tuffle. It's a hook. A hook of cedar wood. So it actually goes in the exact opposite way. What is on the bottom by the Mishkan becomes the roof and the wall by the Beis HaMikdash. What is the primary structure of the Mishkan becomes completely subservient and concealed in the Beis HaMikdash. The explanation in all of this is, In every world, there are four dimensions. Doimim, Tzaymeach, Chai, and Medaber. That's the acronym here, the Rosh Hashanah. Dalad Tzadik Chesmem. Doimim literally means quiet, like Vayidoim Aaron, silent. Doimim is silent. This represents inanimate matter, inorganic matter. A rock is doimim, earth is doimim, a pebble is doimim. In other words, it seems lifeless. As we shall see, it seems lifeless. Today we know, even in science, that doimim is anything but lifeless. There is so much life, even in the tiniest rock, what is going on inside that rock in terms of movement and motion is incredible. But what is relevant to here is, what is relevant to us is the visible display is dead, silent, quiet, no growth, no motion, no movement, no chiyas. Then you have tzimeach. Tzimeach is the world of botany, the world of, of growth, of vegetation, where there's, of course, growth. Then you have the world of Chai, which is the animal kingdom, where you have not only growth, you have growth too, but you also have movement. And movement not just from, you know, from the roots upwards, but movement in the sense that an animal moves around. You have communication, you have, uh, and you have a living organism, including visible awareness and including visible emotions. And then you have Medaber, which represents the speaking soul, which is the homo sapien, what we call the human, the human being, the medaber. But these four concepts are not just four realities in our world by which you can divide our planet. They also represent four concepts in every world. So in every single world you will have doimim tzimei medaber. In each world it represents something else. But there are correlations because every universe and every organism and every person operates on three, four levels. Doimim tzimei medaber. The doimim is always lower than the tzemeach. That's why it's called doimim. It's quiet, it's inanimate, it's silent, it's lifeless, inorganic. Ha tzemeach, where there is organic material. Tzemeach literally means, tzmicha means, litzmeach, to grow, is lamata min hachai, is still inferior to the living organism, to the animal. And then chuli, chuli of course means that the chai is lower than the medaber. Vahailu shebekulam, hubchines hamedaber. The one above is the medaber. <coughs> Which brings us to this question. Why is it that everything really comes from the earth? There's a Pasuk in Kehelas, It's the earth, it's the soil that produces all tzemach, all vegetation. It's the earth that gives rise. It's Mother Earth. The earth is the mother that gives rise to all the tzemeach. On one hand, you say that tzemeach grows and is far more prominent and significant than offer, even in terms of the benefit that it provides to the human being, but yet the mother of tzemeach, the source of all tzemeach, is in the offer and from the offer. The seeds are planted and germinate in the earth. 
and trees and vegetables, flowers, plants, all bushes, everything grows only in and from the offer. Acha inyin, the Of course, he uses here a classic Talmudic expression, meaning don't mix up one element with another element. Emes tzemeach is superior to offer. It doesn't take away from the fact that offer is superior to tzemeach. Even though the doimim is inferior in level, in gradations from tzemech, because of its shoirish, its source, it has something that gives it an advan, an, a maila, an advantage, which is superior to tzemech and even superior to chai, which is why the chai also needs the offer and needs the tzemeach. The animal lives off the tzemeach, or off of various vegetation, which of course originates from the earth. And of course he says, because this is true with the person. The person lives off the animal, or lives off vegetation and produce, even if your mom is a vegan, you still need the tzemeach, you can't live without the tzemeach. And even if you're living from Balchai, you eat steak for breakfast, there's no way the behemoth is living without the tzemeach. And it all comes from the offer. I, we step on the offer. I, the offer is considered the lowest. It's doimem. Mitzah the shayrish. There's something in the shayrish of offer that's even deeper than tzimeh chayim What does this mean? Dehini yaduah machlaikas tanayim begemara. It's no, in the machlaikas of tanayim begemara happens to be beshamayim and besil chagigadaf yud beis. Which ostensibly is a strange machlaikas. Strange argument. Chad Omar one says, shamayim kadmula aretz. Heaven precedes earth. In the beginning, Hashem created heaven and earth. Heaven comes before earth. Chadam, or another view, is Eretz Kadma. Earth precedes heaven. It says also in Bereshis, The day Hashem created earth and heaven. In the beginning of creation, Shemayim precedes Eretz. In the summation of the story, Eretz precedes Shemayim. So Beishamai says, Heaven precedes earth. Beis Hillel says earth precedes heaven. Now what does this mean? Is this a chronological argument? What was created first? Is this an argument about significance? What is significant? What are the ramifications of this? What does this even mean? Heaven precedes earth, earth precedes heaven. The truth is, as we're going to learn, that these are actually two very different shittas in life. Very different shittas in Yiddishkeit. Philosophically, theologically, and therefore it trickles down even psychologically and very practically. And ultimately, like in all of arguments in Chazal, we say, the Gemara says in Erevin, both these and these are the words of the living God, meaning, There are two states. There's the state of Machshava, and there's the state of actualization. In thought, earth precedes heaven. In actuality, heaven precedes earth. In the planning stages, the ultimate objective was earth. However, in the actualizing it, heaven comes first. So if you talk about Bereish's Bore Elikim, it says, If you talk about in the Machshava, Eretz precedes Shemayim. As we say in the Chadoidi, Soif Maisa, the Machshava Tchila. The last action was the first thought. You see it in a person's life as well. Let's say, the Balatanya gives a metaphor elsewhere. Let's say you dream, this is a Muncie example, you're dreaming of your new house in Pomona or any other neighborhood. 
and you're building your house, you're building a house, what dream do you have? You imagine what it's, look, what it's going to look like. You imagine the bedrooms and the dining rooms and the living space and the outside and the inside. You have an imagination. And you're imagining always the final product because that's what excites you. Construction doesn't excite you unless you're insane. <coughs> so that's what excites you. That's the machshava tchila. But what's the second machshava? The second machshava is how do I do it? For this you need an architect and you need a planner, you need a designer, you need a builder and good luck with everything. And then you have the third machshava and fourth machshava. And then for the rest of your machshava you're trying to implement. When do you come back to the first machshava? Soif ma'isa. After the three years of headaches and renovations, and of course everything was done wrong the first time, so you had to redo it. So three years later, ten heart attacks later, a hundred migraines later, and a half a million dollars later, and you finally, finally, if there's such a Metzias, I never met a Jew, you finally get the house, the final product, Soif Maisa, Machshavet Chilat, but the dust, that this is what I wanted. That's only at the end, because in the middle you're getting there. So the ultimate destination, which is the final moment, is the first machshava. So what comes first? You can't skip. Halavai would be able to skip. You can't get to the saif maisa until you don't get to the tchilas maisa. And you can't get to the tchilas maisa before you go through saif machshava. So you have machshava tchila. You have machshava saif, saif machshava. You have maisa tchila, and you have saif maisa. Four stages. Soif Maisa, you finally made it. And this is true with everything. You, you dream about a company, about a business, about a career, about a family. People dream. Soif Maisa is Machshavet So in Machshavet was Eretz. But to get to that Machshavet you have to go away from Eretz. You go into Shemayi. And then you go back to it. Now when you're looking at Eretz, what are you looking at? If you're looking in terms of Maisa, it comes at the end. If you're looking in terms of Machshava, it precedes everything. That's the Elu Veilu Divrei Chayim. So it's not a contradiction. It depends what level of consciousness you're relating to. If you're relating to right now, you have to always look at Shemayim before Eretz. And if you skip the steps, you're not going to have your Eretz. On the other hand, if you're understanding the ultimate destination, the ultimate perspective, your priorities change. What, really, what this really means is, when we speak about the hierarchy and priorities, it's not always right and wrong. Sometimes your priority cannot be your destination. Because if your priority becomes your destination, you lose the process. And if you lose the process, you won't reach your destination. You know, when you're driving on the highway and you still have uh, seven hours to get to your destination or 26 hours to get to your destination in Miami or whatever it is, right now you have to focus on the journey. I can't only be in the destination, because you know what happens then. You're going to fall asleep at the wall, at the, at the, at the, at the wheel. You're not going to be good at it. You have to acknowledge the journey. On the other hand, you also have to understand the destination. So which is true? In pedagogy, as we will see, but these two roles become very important. What is the process, and what is the destination? And what is first in one area is not first in the other area. That's what he says here. Because it's at the end, therefore it's at the beginning. It's Habahatalya. Because it's the lowest, therefore it's the highest. Because it comes last, it means it was first. If it wouldn't be first, it wouldn't come last. If it wouldn't come last, it wouldn't be first. It comes last, meaning it's the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate desire that comes all the, after all the work. 
That is what was my initial spark. That is what excited me. Shamayim is the beginning of Maisa. It's the last one in thought. This is the principle in life. What looks like the end is always the beginning. And what looks like the beginning is always the end. He says it's a cloud. It's not a pizayotzim and a cloud. It's a cloud. What looks like on the bottom is always on the top. What looks like on the top is really on the bottom. It doesn't look that way. You could look at it and say, eh, it's nothing. It's the earth. It's the bottom. It's really the top. And what looks like on the top, it bloats itself as the top, is really on the bottom. Even though it's on the top, it's first. Depends how you see it. And therefore, Tzemeach is higher than Doimim. This is the order, Ishtalshalos means evolution. The word Shalshalos, this is the order of evolution. There's a hierarchy. Doimim and Tzemeich are similar. Doimim is like Eretz. Chai, Medaber. Tzemeich, Chai, Medaber is more like heaven. So Doimim is the lowest. In the order of evolution, Doimim is the lowest. Tzemeich and Chai are above it. Heaven precedes earth. And that's true. Umikol makay mitzat sharshan v'machshava hagduma hadi edits davke kod malakulam v'machshava. But if you can go back to the shayrish, to the machshava, to the divine primordial thought, suddenly the hierarchy changes. That which was so insignificant, that which was all the way at the end, which nobody spoke about, was really the first thought. That's why she can produce all the vegetation, because her source is deeper than all of them. They all become recipients of it. As we shall see, Yehuda and Yosef represent these two polar opposites. Who's higher than who? Who has to be the melech? Who has to be the subservient to the melech? Oh, that's far from simple. It depends. Shamayim kadmola aretz, aretz kadmola shamayim. So, in the first paragraph of the Maim of Ayigash, the Balatanya said, why was the Mishkan <coughs> built primarily from Arazim, Kairos Bateno Arazim, all the beams were wood, and then the roof was an elevation <laughs> to the next level, which is, which consisted of uh, tapestries that came from animal hide where the base Hamikdash, basically the walls and the roof, were made from uh, stones. So he began explaining that we find that there's a special myla, a special unique advantage in doymen, inanimate, lifeless, inorganic matter, even over tzemeach, and that is that it's earth that grows, it's only earth that can create growth and vegetation. There's nothing else in the world, there's nothing else on our planet that produces that which the earth produces. So when you look at earth, there's a special derech eretz, a special respect that one ought to have for the earth, hakal hoyim in the offer. But this is basically the source of everything. And in order to explain this, that doimim is really the source, it's the mother, and yet we consider it in the hierarchy of existence, the lowest rung. Even though you grow today you need to use soil usually. 
I mean, today I guess we uh, manipulate a lot of things, right? So he says that this is connected to the machlekas of the Tanoim, what comes first, heaven or earth? And the reconciliation is they're both real, they're both right. In the actual creation, heaven precedes earth because heaven is the introduction to earth. But in Machshava, earth precedes heaven because it's the Saif Maisa, and the Saif Maisa is Machshava Tchila, and similarly, Tzemeach is higher than Daimon. And uh, it's like Shamayim versus Eretz, and yet the source of Daimon in Machshava is higher than Tzemeach because Daimon is actually Saif Maisa, just like Eretz is Saif Maisa. That's a very, very brief summation of what we learned. Let's go further. The Mishkan still did not represent ultimate perfection. It was only a temporary home for the Rebbein Nishalem. The Pasuk says in Shmuel Beis, The Mishkan, Hashem says, I walked around, I strolled around in the tent and in the Mishkan. In other words, the Mishkan is called an oil, not a bias. And in Halacha, we know the difference between an oil, a tent, and a bias, as a bias represents a makam kavu, a permanent residence, and an oil, by definition, represents a temporary residence. And it's not a question of quantity, not of how long you're going to live there. Even if you happen to live in a tent your whole life, but the quality of it, the nature of it, represents a more uh, um, transitional, a more temporary residence. We all know that... When a person lives in a Diras Ara, you don't have the same emotional relationship like when you live in a Diras Kva. You know, when your house is under construction and you rent somebody else's house, you're a tenant, or even if it's yours, but it's a temporary residence, there's no, especially for the Akaris Abayas, for the woman, you can't compare the emotional connection that you have with a Diras Kva to a Diras Ara. It's like a Diras Kva, it's like you find yourself there. This is my stup, it's my space. My space. <laughs> a Diras Ara, you don't have that feeling. Even though technically you're doing the same things. You're sleeping and you're spending time there and you're, you're celebrating there and you're having arguments there and all the beautiful things you do in your house. But nonetheless, there's a certain lack of permanence that you could see emotionally. You don't make it yours. Spiritually speaking, this means that the Mishkan and the Beis were very different. In terms of Ashras Hashchina, God was there. But it's called a temporary residence. It's called an oil versus a bias. Yeah. Even though the Yemais lived their whole lives in an oil. Emes. That's what I'm saying. It's not about how many years. Yeah. It's about a certain nature. It's a certain qualitative nature. Transient. So the Mishkan followed the hierarchy of creation. This is based on the Ramah, Rabbeinu Moshe Israelish, the Rav of Krakow, has a sefer called Teiras, and there he describes the whole structure of the Mishkan and really of the Beis HaMikdash in terms of reflecting the structure of the universe. Basically, the Mishkan was a microcosm, a little picture, a miniature picture of the entire universe. So the hierarchy of creation is reflected in the hierarchy of the Mishkan. The Mishkan reflects what's called Seder Ishtashlus, which means the evolutionary process from spiritual to physical in which the Rabbi Nishalelem created the world. This is the energy that comes out in the evolutionary process, and therefore it follows 
a particular hierarchy. Where do you see this? The walls of the Mishkan come from wooden beams, which represent Tzemeach. Wood is from trees. The earth of the Mishkan, which is, of course, below the walls, comes from earth. In the way the worlds evolve, the concept of Tzemeach precedes Doimim. Tzemeach has a more powerful life force. <coughs> Doimim has a concealed life force, and hence, Doimim is under Tzemeach. And thus the beams were not just made of any type of wood, they were made from cedar. From all trees, the eres, the cedar grows with tremendous stature and height. In Tzemeach itself, it represents a higher rung, so to speak, in the hierarchy in terms of, of height and stature and how much it grows. So this is not just the regular tzemeach that transcends daimim. It's above, above daimim in which you see absolutely no growth whatsoever. Not only is it not tall, it doesn't grow. It remains what is. It's dead. It's lifeless, at least from a visible point, from a visible perspective. So therefore the definition of tzemeach is, the word tzemeach means it grows from small to large. Where daimim there's no tzmicha at all. And if that's the case, the taller it grows, it means the more the quality of tzemeach is expressed in it. If the definition of tzemeach is growth, the more growth, the more the essential quality and properties of tzemeach are expressed. Now you go to the next level. Now you climb and you go to the roof of the mishkan. Are from tapestries the height of rams Here you have the animal kingdom, which transcends even tzemeach, which is which is the min You can't compare the life in a plant, in a flower, in a bush, in a vegetable, to the life force that's expressed in an animal. The animal walks around. The animal is a living organism, an organism that consists of so many more dimensions of life, including emotions, including revealed awareness and intelligence. Revealed awareness and intelligence, at least on an animal, on an animal level, certainly profound emotions of attachment, especially as the research of the last few decades about the rich internal life of animals that is quite surprising, sometimes extremely and intricately uh, rich and emotional. <laughs> the Urias, which I represent Makif. Makif means the higher the higher energy that encompasses the home, which are spread over the walls, in other words, above the walls, they come from the world of Chai, the animal kingdom, which is beyond the world of vegetation, from which the walls of the Mishkan are made. So in other words, you have the Ofer HaMishkan, the lowest part of the Mishkan is Doimim, as you climb up in the hierarchy, you go and you find Tzemeach. As you climb further up the ladder, you go to the roof and you encounter uh, the Chai. So the Yiriyas that are on top of the Mishka, and they actually come down over the beams, right? The Pasuk says in Truma, they come down and they cover all the four sides, or at least much of the four sides of the beams, represents a higher light of the Mishka, which he calls Pchines Makifim, and because there's a higher light... It's represented in Chai. In other words, as you go down the Mishkan, you also descend. 
the light descends, the Shekhinah that's there, so to speak, descends. It becomes a little more restricted. That's how Hishtalshalus works. The evolutionary process works. In the higher world, there's more consciousness of the divine. In the lower world, there's less consciousness. In this world, it's called the world of Doimim, from a spiritual perspective, meaning you don't see godliness at all. From a godly perspective, it's a lifeless world. You have to search to find. Oilam Miloshim Helen. Doimim. Our world bespeaks nothing. It's a silent world. It's a world in which you can shred the face of the planet for decades and decades. You shouldn't even entertain once the idea that everything is really divine energy. A person, why? This is what Daim is, exactly what Daim is. In Iraq, there is an unbelievable energy. But you could look at Iraq your whole life, and without the proper instruments, without the microscope, without the education, you would never guess the vivacious uh, vitality that is taking place, the tremendous action and drama and, uh, and movement and motion of the molecular and atomic structure of the rock. From a visible perspective, it's just dead. We know how dead it is. It's just dead from your eyes' perspective. It's not dead at all. But that's what Hishtalshalus is. Hishtalshalus is not that God is not in this world. It's just the evolutionary process. In each world, there is more tzimtzum, more concealment. The Mishkan follows that pattern. So the, Ur, the, the Urias represents the roof of the Mishkan, which physically represents the mark of the higher light. The Schai, you go down to Tzemech, and then you go down to Dunham, because the Mishkan is the microcosm of Ishtalshalus. The Mishkan is constructed based on the um, classification, based on the grade, uh, gra- grading, based on the grading of Hishtalshalus. As the evolution comes from higher to lower, heaven precedes earth, chai precedes tzemeach, tzemeach precedes doimim. Shemayim and Eretz here are used as a mushal, as a paradigm for tzemeach, and of course tzemeach is also not heaven, and chai is also not heaven. But the idea is that with there's more ruchnius, or in other words, more life, there's a more expression of godliness. Shamayim has more ruchnius. Godliness is more revealed in heaven. Heaven here is a metaphor for, for spirituality. For the higher world, heaven precedes earth. And the same concept comes out. So Shamayim and Eretz is using as a paradigm to compare to the concept of Chai Tzemeichanem, even though, of course, all of them are in Eretz. Even a Chai is in Eretz. Question. Yeah. So I understand that the Hishtalshalus and the light being more restricted, but how does it relate to the first line in the column? Why does Hishtalshalus okay, and creating... Excellent. Okay. Excellent question. The question is, why does that represent that the Mishkan is not a state of Tachlis HaShlemus? So now we have to see the contrast, which he's going to immediately continue discussing. The Beis HaMikdash represents a far... Deeper perfection. The Mishnah is called his permanent residence. The Pasuk says in Tehillim, This is my resting place for eternal, eternally. And as the Rambam Paskins and Hilchas Beis Abchira famously, that the Kedusha of the Makam HaMikdash Eina Ptela, even after Kibush Rishon, even after the first conquest, where the Kedusha of Yehoshua was bottled, L'shita Sarambam, Kedusha Rishoyna, Kitschel Hashayit, V'loi Kitschel Asad Lavoi, nonetheless, Kedusha HaSamikdash is not bottled, because it's B'pnei HaShchina, U'shchina E'ne P'tele. You can't say that about the Mishkan. The moment they transferred the Mishkan from one place to another place, five minutes ago, this earth was a sacred place. And if you walked into this earth, if you walked into the, on this soil, you walked in, Hazar HaKarev, you must. 
Five minutes later, as the Bnei Kahas transported the Mishkan to a new place, and suddenly this offer had no zecher, had no memory, no trace of it. That's what a diras aray is. Why do we call it Tachlis Hashleimus? It really reflected the future world. In the seventh millennium, when we say, the day of serenity for eternity, the Menucha, Zois Menuchasi in the Beis Hamikdash, this doesn't mean the Beis Hamikdash was always a serene place. What it means is that the serenity that one can access in the Beis Hamikdash contained in it something of the energy that is going to be revealed, revealed in the seventh millennium when we say there will be menucha for eternity lechayi ha'ilamen. So when you say the Beis Hamikdash was a diras kva, what do we mean here a diras kva? A diras kva is you call it your own. You're fully present. Like we said in a diras ara, there's a lack of an emotional connection. Right? Sometimes a wife will tell her husband, I can't call this my home. It's just not mine, it's, it's somebody else's. I could make a few fapachkas, I could do some pachkas and hang up a picture of my Elta or Elta Baba, but it's not mine. It's a certain, uh, it's a sensitive relationship to your deity, even though what's the difference? But it's not like that. A permanent residence, it's like you're fully present there. This means that in the Beis HaMikdash, so to speak, there's a full presence of Hashem. In other words... What we learn in the Beis HaMikdash is truth the way it's in God's mind, not only the way it comes out in Seder Hishtalshalos. That's the difference. In the Mishkan, you have the hierarchy of creation, the way it's manifested. The Beis HaMikdash, you have a reflection also of the mind, the strategy behind the creation. And therefore, Sha'oz tis'ala ha'aretz suddenly, the earth will be sublimated, shehi, and it doesn't only mean this earth, it starts off, everything in the physical is a evolution from the spiritual. So when you speak about a flower, or you speak about water, or fire, or snow, you have the physical properties of snow, but like everything in the world, it evolved from spiritual properties of snow. You have snow in the world of Atzillus, you have snow in the world of Bri, you have snow in the world of Yitzir, you have snow in the world of Asiyah. What does snow mean? It means something else. Everywhere. In the world of Asiya, snow means hopefully there won't be school. That's the translation of snow. For some of us, it means a more beautiful world. For some of us, it means working for an hour to get your car out of uh, the driveway. Whatever snow means. And for some people, it's a poetic, splendid experience in which they become children again and celebrate life in a unique way. When uh, Nesham of Atzilus says, I think it's snowing, <laughs> there the snow means something else. It's the same snow. But it doesn't assume the physical properties. It's the spiritual energy of what snow is. And the same is straight with rain. With rain and everything else. So the broadcasts that we hear from the meteorologist, right? There's different layers of it. It's the same broadcast. But what does it mean? What does rain mean? What does snow mean? And the same is true with everything. So everything has a source in Ruchnitz and it comes in the Gashmi. So he says, Eretz al is going to be sublimated. Which in Atsilis, Eretz is Malchus because it's the 10th and lowest Madrega. And that is going to become higher than everything. Kamay Shekosov, as the Pasuk says in Mishle, Eishes Chayil Ateres Baila. A woman of valor is the crown of her husband, meaning, Shetia Ateres Laosid Lover Lizeir Anpinda Atsilis. Eishes Chayil Kabbalistically is associated with Malchus, femininity, royalty, the feminine quality of the world of Atsilis. One day, the Isha will have the Ateris. The crown is above the king. The crown adores the king. The crown represents that the king was elevated to something beyond his own humanness. He became a king. 
the Aisha's Chayel is Ateris Baila, she elevates her husband. Suddenly what will be revealed is that the feminine quality is deeper than the masculine quality. That Aisha's Chayel is the crown to her husband. Or in Oisius of Kabbalah, that Ze'er Anpin of Atzilis, which represents the six Midas, Chesed, Gvur, Teferis, Netzachot, you say that precede Malchus, are suddenly being adored, adorned by the crown of Malchus, which is the Eishas Chayel Ateris Baila. Why? Because Eretz is Soif Maisa. Soif Maisa Ola B'machshavet Chile, in other words, in Hashem's mind, earth precedes heaven and transcends heaven. So La'asid Lavoy, when the emes of God's mind will be revealed in the world, suddenly the hierarchy changes. Suddenly what is Soif Maisa, what is Doimen, what has been dismissed as not that significant, actually occupies the deepest significance. In every world, you have the heaven of the world and you have the earth in the world. From the highest world, Atzilus, you have Shemayim and Eretz. And in the lowest world, in our world, you have Shemayim and Eretz. And generally speaking, in the Seder Hishtalshalus, Shemayim precedes Eretz, and Eretz receives from Shemayim. So you have Medaber, you have Chay, you have Tzemech, and you have Doimen. Eishas Chayla Teres Baila represents a topsy-turvy, a shift. Vahainu Mitzat Sharsha. Because the source will emerge. That in Machshav Agdum, in the primordial thought, Eretz precedes heaven. So the Beis Hamikdash, which reflected this level of energy, look at the Beis Hamikdash. The primary structure of the home was built from what? From stones, from earth, which represent diamond. Even the roof and the mazeva, the the gutters, shehipchines hamakif, which is the makif of the beis hamikdash. In other words, the higher light of the beis hamikdash, nasa me'avonim va'afar v'loy ma'arazim, no cedar, stones, rock, lifeless. Shehukifim ashiyeh la'asid lovei. It's a reflection of the future. Even masu aboinim will see hoysel reishpina. The rock that the builders dismissed as nothing became the cornerstone. And it was said about whom? David HaMelech. That's the key. David HaMelech. V'loy me'arazim, shukifim ha'shiyel asad lovishabchines, Eretz Kadma. Earth proceeds. Eishas chayel ha'teres ba'ilam etzat sharsh. I'm not going to get into this right at the moment. I'm just going to throw something in. Every, I'll pee the Torah of the Balatanya. Every change in history in the world is a reflection of divine energy that comes into the world at that time. Every development in history is because humanity senses something. Why do they sense something? Because God is communicating something. The question is, do they know how to articulate it? Do they know how to access it? And the most important thing is they know how to apply it in a productive, divine way. There's a reason that in the 1950s, there's a reason that in our generation there was an explosion of a concept called feminism. How it's applied may sometimes be productive. He's going to say the atomic bomb. Atomic bomb, They're both the same... Don't say that too loud. Your wife may be listening. But, uh, so, it's very easy to look, and it's an important idea why I want to say it. It's very look, easy to look at a development in the world and see that it leads many people to make decisions that may be very counterproductive in the long run. 
The classic example would be feminism. I think it was Gloria Steinem who explained and said famously, women need men like fish need bicycles. And this introduced a consciousness. Marriage? <laughs> Relationships? Eh. We need men like fish need bicycles. And you know how much fish need bicycles. So it's very easy, especially from the perspective of the Torah Jew, to look at it and just say, feh, dismiss it. But that's really a superficial perspective. Because what's happening is, civilization tunes into a certain energy which is a divine energy. But if you don't have the if you don't have the tools and the language to be able to articulate it, it can go into many different directions. Feminism is really a sense of an energy of Aishas Chayela Teres Bible, a perception of femininity that's introduced to the world the closer you get to Yom Shekulish Shabbos and Menucha when Eretz Kadmul So even though throughout thousands of years the paradigms of society were the woman follows the husband, the husband leads the home, suddenly there was a revolution. Vos, vu, ven, why is this idiot, this Shlomil, Shlomazel, Shmegegi, going to tell me how to live my life, I'm going to get salaries more than me, he's going to be the judge and the lawyer, whatever he's going to be, and I'm going to be uh, waiting for him with his crocs uh, to come home, and here, uh, dinner is almost ready. Vos benech, vos benech. Okay, so that's how it got translated, or in other ways, whatever, whatever the Nikud is. But there's an energy... And whenever you dismiss something, you have to be careful not to dismiss the energy. Why? Because the energy is actually a godly message. And if you do it, you become backwards. You're not tuned in to the generation. You're not tuned in even to the spirituality of the generation. So this is a very important yisoy that you see here. When he speaks about Eishas Chayotel, it's not a small thing. Because what this means is that that society develops, it graduates from a Seder Hishtalshalos hierarchy to a deeper form of a hierarchy, where you see things on a deeper level. And on a deeper level, what was seen always as subservient, sometimes is actually completely transformed. Of course, in the ultimate truth, it's Elu Elu de Relikim Chayim. Shamayim precedes Eretz, and Eretz precedes Shamayim. It's just at certain moments you could feel one in a more powerful way, and in certain moments you could feel something else in a more powerful way. That's basically the difference with the Mishkan and the Beisamek. Now, so the Beis Hamikdash, the roof, which represents the Ermakif, is done from Avonim, offer. Suddenly the earth became the prominent feature. In the Beis Hamikdash, you had hooks of cedar, but they were completely subservient to the primary structure. They were concealed in the roof, and they were basically supporters. They were supporting of the gutter in certain aspects of it, which is like supporters of Torah, that allow the Torah to be learned. And therefore, it's not like the Mishkan with the beams of cedar. This was the stature of the Mishkan. Here, the main base of Mishkan is Doimim. Inside the Doimim, you have a little Tzimech. That's the paradigm of the Beis Hamikdash. You know what Ba'alul means? You could see in a very visible way that there's something in earth that doesn't exist anywhere else. And that is, we learned before the Maila of Doimen that it creates production, it produces, it grows to the point that Saimeach needs earth and Chai needs earth and Medaba needs earth. 
That's Parshat physically. Now he's going to say there's something else you see in earth. For who b'chines ha-bitl And that is the quality of bitl. Avram Avinu says, V'anoichi ofar ve'ef. We say in Shemayna Esra, from Brachis, at the end of Shemayna Esra, the kind of said from Brachis in Zion, V'nafshi ka'afal ha-kaltiyah. What's V'nafshi ka'afal ha-kaltiyah? The exact opposite of Tzemeach. You don't step on a cedar tree. <laughs> if you're a good monkey, you could maybe climb it. You don't step on a cedar tree, it's going to step on you a lot faster than you'll step on it. Afar invites you. Afar says here, Kum tretafmir. It becomes Midras. You know what Midras is. Midras is, it becomes, so to speak, the stepping stone under everybody's feet. People walk on it, and the offer is comfortable. It doesn't protest. It doesn't holler. It doesn't fight back. On the contrary, it's almost made for it. Here, come step on me. No way. Now what is this? What is this? If somebody, now here we have to be sensitive to what he's going to say. If you say there's two people, one person is a tree, <laughs> a cedar tree, and one person is earth. And what's the difference? On one, nobody steps. They look and say, wow, he's tall, I'm not going to start him. And the other one, here, come, step. Oh, you also want to step on me? No problem. Thousands of people could step on me and I won't say a word. In today's vocabulary, that's not a very... Uh, encouraged, encouraged quality. Self-confidence, self-empowerment. Ah, toisvus. We mean months ago. Toisvus and brachas, of course. That's going to be the point. You're giving up your yeshus. Right, right. But the truth is, the truth is, the toisvus you mean, yeah. The truth is, depends how you define it. Yeah, if you define it, I'm just a, a, a doormat. I'm basically a rag. Step on me. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the milus habitel that the offer has. What is this milus habitel that the offer has? It says It's because offers unique shaydish in Hashem's thought. Soif ma'isa b'machshavat chila. Machshave is a combination of two words. Cheshev ma. Why is it called Cheshev ma? The word ma, ma, who tachlis habitl. When they attack Moshe, they want to stone him. Moshe says, What are we? Venachnu ma. Ma is what? Vos. What are we that you're attacking us? What do you see in me? that you want to stone me. You don't know me. What is Moshe Rabbeinu saying? I'm a conduit. I'm not here to control you, to be a dictator. So ma is something that you don't even know what it is. You have to ask what it is. Essentially, it represents a very profound concept of bitl, which he's associating with machshava, which is cheshev, ma, which ma is like ma, the concept of bitl. Generally speaking, Machshava and Dibur, thought are words. Thoughts, thoughts and words are the instruments to which we express ourselves. When a, person, when a person thinks, you're expressing to yourself something. When a person speaks, you're expressing to somebody else something. But it's always expression. Remember, Machshava is also expression. It's expression to yourself. 
thinking about something. You have an idea, you have an emotion, it's a picture. Processing it through thought is basically accessing it to yourself. That's why we think in a language. Everybody thinks in a language. You don't usually don't think of yourself that way, but everyone sitting here thinks in a language. You maybe think in Yiddish, you may think in English, but there's no such a thing you don't think in a language, because thought is comprised of letters, of Isis. It's not just a picture. Then you have Dibur, in which you express it to somebody else. But there's a big difference between Machshava and Dibur. And that is, in words, in Dibur, the Isis become concretized. The letters become very solid. They become consolidated. And therefore, what happens? When you're listening to my words, what you hear first is letters. The letters you comprise into words. And from that you concoct the idea. In Machshava, it's the other way around. In Machshava, the letters are subservient to the idea and the emotion. In Dibur, first of all, the Oysias become solid, concretized. That's why they can leave me and assume a separate identity. And what you're hearing, a person could memorize words like kids do all the time in Mishnayas and not understand anything. Because what you're hearing first are the Oysias and then the Isis hopefully will bring you to the Neshama in the Isis. In Machshavah, it's the other way around. In Machshavah, the Isis are bottled to the message. In Dibur, the message is bottled to the Isis. In Machshavah, the Oyr overpowers the Keli. In Dibur, the Keli overpowers the Oyr. In Machshavah, the Isis, in which the idea is enclosed, are nullified. They're surrendered. They're subservient to the light of the Seichel. When you're thinking, why do I have to convince you that you're thinking in words? I don't have to convince anybody that you speak in a language. Why in thinking do I have to make the point? Because when you're thinking, you don't feel the letters. What do you feel? You feel the energy. You feel the idea. You don't even realize you're thinking in letters and words. Because the letters and words assume completely the identity of the energy that is contained within them. We're in Dibur, it's the other way around. The letters become the prominent feature and they hold the energy hostage in them. And that's why people can memorize letters and words. And of course, Machshavah, you could force yourself to do that. You could just like look and think about letters and words. But it's a very active, uh, a conscious thought. This means that Machshavah represents something that is associated here with Bittl. That's why he calls it Cheshev, Cheshev Ma. The letters don't assume a distinct and separate identity. Eretz soif maise b'machshavat chila. What's that machshavat chila? The way God envisions the world. The way God envisions the world, the world is still godly. It's not outside of Him. So the oisius with which He created the world are bottled to the oil, like in machshava. So machshava is called cheshev ma. You following? The world was created by asara Mamaris. but it doesn't say God thought the world. It says God spoke the world. I didn't say Hashem thought the world. The answer is because in thought there are also Isis. It's not like the emotion itself. But the Isis are bottled to the oil. They don't have a separate identity. So if God would have thought the world, we would look at the world, and what would we see? We would see a world like thoughts that basically are completely subservient, they're transparent of divine energy. Because He spoke the world, many of us, all we hear are letters and words. And you don't often get the energy inside of it. That's why it says in Pirkeiavis, "Kol ha'oimer davar b'shem oimrei, mevi geula la'oilam." Literally, if you say something in the name of the person who said it, you bring redemption to the world. 
So Talmud of the Chassam Soifu became a Rav. And he said, Rebbe, do I have permission to steal your Torah and say it in my name? Because since I know nothing, but if I tell them I know nothing, it won't work, and I need Torah. But if I say everything in your name, they're going to say, why don't you come up with anything on your own? Do you give me permission to say your Torah and claim that it's mine? Some Soifu said, no problem, I'll give you permission, just one thing. If you're saying your own Torah, don't say it in my name. <laughs> my Torah, you could say in your name, don't say your Torah in my name. Don't associate me with your ideas. What's means if you can identify in everything in the world, the one who said it, you redeem the world from its concealment. Because in Dibor, the energy becomes subservient to the letters. In Machshava, the letters are subservient to the energy. We don't feel the language in Machshava. It's just automatic. It's a process. So Machshava is a higher stage of the universe. Machshava is also creation. But Saif Maiseb Machshava Tchila. Because Eretz, because Earth comes from Machshava Tchila, and in Machshava Tchila there's nothing outside of the divine energy, therefore it has Bittal. So the Bittal of Eretz doesn't come because. It's a shmata. It comes because itself is one with God. Because its sense of self is one with God, it doesn't need an ego to justify its existence. It doesn't need an ego to justify it. You stepping on me will not destroy me. And the reason it will not destroy me is because my identity is so powerful that your stepping on it cannot alter it in the slightest because I don't need you to validate my existence, because my existence is invincible, because it's completely one with the source. You're you, you tapping into the survey. The survey Okay, okay, okay. Huh? Right. So, I know. so when you dive in the morning and you say, or your son is going to school, and he says, Tati, give me a message. How should I be today? So say your soul should be like dust, like earth. Let everybody step on you. The teachers, the friends, the principal, let everybody step on you. Some people got that message in the morning, especially when they came back. When they came back and they said that they got slapped up, so they got a second set of Malkus, because the first Malkus. So what's this? V'nafshi ka'ofer lakolti. My soul should be like offer for everybody, not just for Choshevah people to step on me, not just for my Shviger, for everybody. Every Tom, uh, Yankel and Harry in the world should look at me and say, a nice tickle offer. Let's go right on it. Let's go right on it. Right? So Toysvis and Brochus, Yudzayin says, I'm going to quote, Ma offer enoi mekabel kliya Offer is indestructible. There's nothing you can do to destroy offer. What's Benavshi Kafala Kaltiya? My soul should be indestructible. What does it mean on an emotional, psychological level? How could you become indestructible in this world? Only one way through Bittal. Bittal means as long as you separate yourself from your source. So now your existence is weak, so now you must have the validation of others to make you powerful. Because my existence is frail, it's flimsy. The moment you understand Saif Maisab Machshavat Khila, the earth has a magic to it. The earth does not lose its dignity. At night, when the earth comes home 
and the wife says, Was machst How is life? Imagine the earth would say, A hundred thousand people trampled on me. Idioten, rotschim, shakronim, gazlonim, mitu oven. And she'll say, Did you protest? Did you scream? No. I'm going to do it tomorrow again. Say, you're so traumatized. You don't even know how traumatized you are, right? So every morning we say, This is your tefillah. The pshat is the other way around. The offer is so powerfully one with the source that it completely remains indestructible. Why? Because its existence is essential. Its existence is not circumstantial. Soif maise v'machshavetchil. What's machshava? Cheshev ma. Machshava is not the idea itself. The idea itself would be divine energy. Machshava is the way the idea or emotion is incarnated through letters and words. It's a language. But it's a language that's not concretized because it's still subservient to the energy and therefore you don't feel so much the passage, the flow of letters and words. What you feel when you're thinking... You don't feel that I'm thinking about an idea. You're thinking about the idea. The idea takes over. In Saif Maisa, you have the world from the divine perspective, his machshava, and therefore Eretz personifies this quality. Where do you see it physically? Everybody steps on it. How does the Eretz allow this? How does the offer allow this? Because it doesn't need a sense of self to exist. It's so one with its source, it doesn't need that sense of self to exist. Because its wholesomeness is not acquired, its wholesomeness is completely innate. Just like God is invincible, that which is one with Hashem is invincible. So Taisva says, I should be indestructible like Af. And it's it's Habahatalya. Yeah, that's the process of Mahshova. Mahshava again, there's a hierarchy, there's an evolution. In Dibur, the thoughts come down, they become more concrete, they become more coarse, and they become a little more detached from the source. That's why I could speak words, and trust me, I know from experience, what I say and what people hear are never the same thing. In fact, often I'll go over to somebody and say, what did you hear me say? And he'll tell me, and it's the exact opposite of what I said. He wouldn't even think so. Why? Because words tend to assume a separate identity. And, in fact, you could listen to the words, you can memorize the words, you don't even have any idea. Or, you misconstrue the idea, you hear what you want to hear. Machshava is far harder to manipulate, because it's inside of me. It's, <laughs> I not, know what it's I'm, not different what you said, it's different what you... you of course, everyone takes it. Yeah. So when Hashem thinks the world into existence, it's never separate and it's not distorted. When He speaks the world into existence, we all see a world. The world is His speech, but what do you do with His speech? First of all, you can detach the speech from the speaker. This is what people do. You hear of art, right? You say it over on Shabbos. You don't say who you heard it from. Why? You don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to. The words don't demand allegiance to the source. The words become separated from the source. That's the Chiddush. If you could look at everything in the world and identify the speaker, you redeem the world from the hell of Esther. That's a unique concept that only exists in Dibur, doesn't exist in Machshav. But the self Machshava can be manipulated? Listen, we, we could manipulate our own Machshava, but it's a different type of manipulation. It's because you are manipulated. <laughs> it's because you are manipulated. It's a different type of manipulation. It's not from the outside. 
cleaned out his with, by, by the awareness of the ego, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Bashem Omer really means to have to go all the way back to the original Omer, which is behind Omer number the one. The Mahshava. So the original. Bashem Omer is the name. Go to the one who said it. The Rebbe who told it to me where, where he got it from, who got it from who. Exactly, exactly. The original source of the energy. Yeah. The energy. What's Cheshev? Cheshev. Cheshev is thought. But Machshav is a combination of two words. Cheshev, which means thought. But what is Machshav and Ma? He's really identifying what Machshav is. Machshav is there's still much more Edelkeit. So you have three processes. You have three stages. You have the emotion itself. The emotion itself would be like almost a picture. The love, the, the fear, the hate, whatever it is. Or the idea, the Svara. That's stage one. Now you have thinking about it. We cannot grasp the idea of the emotion without processing it. Our way of processing things is thought. But in thought, words are created. Letters are created. Letters are outside of the idea. They are levushim. They are containers. But here the levush is completely subservient to the oil that's in the levush. The next stage is dibur. And you'll see that from achshavah to dibur is a very long journey. Sometimes people have to give a speech. They plan it. They think it through. It's all perfect. They open their mouth. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. Why? It was so clear by you. But in your mind, it's obvious. It's pashat. Because it's a different world. It's a different world. In machshave, you feel the energy. Now let me... Uh, I'll, 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 I'll visualize it to you this way. How many of you have ever listened to a recording of you speaking for around a half an hour or ten minutes? How many of you? I'm sure some of you. How did your sound, how did your voice sound to you the first time you heard it on a tape or on a CD? Huh? Weird, right? Weird, horrible, foreign. Huh? What? <laughs> like it always does, okay? Like it always does. And uh, I remember the first time I listened to myself, I'm like, I had one thought, who would ever listen to this person? <laughs> who would ever listen to this person how could, how could a normal person do it yeah. I went into a car the other day somebody gave me a lift and they were listening to yours truly so I said do me a favor shut it off I have a hard time enough being me I don't have to now listen to me you want to wait till I leave you could listen to me huh? why do you want to know so, so no one second why is this a person could be living 40 years and then you press play, and they hear themselves, and they say, what? What does this mean? This means 40 years you were talking, and you never heard yourself. <laughs> 40 years you were talking, you never heard yourself. Suddenly, you're 40 years old, you heard yourself. Oh my God, this is grotesque. This is appalling. This is horrible. This person's voice should not be allowed onto this planet. It's muktza machmas mis. What happened? You've been talking, and you're a guy who doesn't stop talking. You never once heard yourself. Why? The answer is because your dibur is stemming from you. Your dibur is really machshava, in terms of you. The power of dibur is other people, not you. You see, what I'm hearing when I speak is, I'm not hearing my words. I'm hearing my message, because I know my message. I don't hear what I sound like. And therefore, I take for granted my words and letters, because I know it from within. The audience doesn't know my message. All they have to hold on to is words. So here is the challenge of speaking. How do you take that idea and put it into the word that the word should become alive? This most people don't think about. 
because they're projecting machshava into dibur. And the machshava, the words are insignificant because you know it. The words are just like tuffle there, but in dibur it's exactly the other way around. In dibur it's all about the words because that's all the audience has. So now you have to go through a whole transition. Is this idea going to be conveyed in a powerful, accurate way through the words. And that's why what it sounds like is very different than what it sounds like to you. Because what it sounds like to you is suddenly, for the first time, you hear what your words sound like. Throughout your life, you never heard it. All you heard was your thoughts emerging. So in thoughts, there's a much deeper connection with the source. In Dibur, there's much more separation. That's the process of Machshava versus Dibur. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.